Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. We've been working through a list of character qualities that are found in two verses in the New Testament. They're Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. So let me read them to you. It's what it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It doesn't come natural. Against such things, there is no law. In other words, you can't make rules and make people do these things. These things are, are like fruit that God's Spirit over time grows in us as we cooperate with Him. So up to this point, we've been looking at the character qualities that pretty much everyone would agree that they really want these. Today, we turn our attention to a quality that very few people are striving for, and that is gentleness. Gentleness is not a quality that I've ever seen on a resume. I've done a lot of job interviews. I've never seen anyone uh, feature gentleness as something they think is really good to put on a resume. And that's because we've been taught that if you want to get ahead in life, you need to be aggressive, you need to be assertive, not gentle. But according to Jesus, it's the gentle that over time end up getting much farther ahead in life. Here's what he says in Matthew 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, in the New Testament, there's one word that's translated in English, either gentleness or meek. And in uh, Galatians chapter 5, it's translated gentleness. And in Matthew chapter 5, in the words of Jesus, it's translated meek. But it's the same word, the same word in the Greek language in the New Testament. The meek will inherit the earth. How is that possible? That doesn't seem possible. Webster defines meek as being deficit in spirit and courage, not strong, mild. So we equate meekness or gentleness with weakness. The meek, the gentle, are timid. They're the ones that let other people walk over them because they're too afraid to stand up for themselves. But that is not the definition of meekness or gentleness in the Bible. In fact, some of the strongest people in the Bible were credited and praised for their meekness or gentleness. Here's what we read about Moses in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek more than all people who were on the face of the earth. If you know the story of Moses, you've read it or you've seen some of the movies, nobody would accuse Moses of being weak. I mean, you don't confront Pharaoh, the leader of the most powerful empire on earth at the time, if you're timid. And you certainly can't lead two million plus people through the desert with almost no resources for 40 years and be a weak person. So then what does it mean to be gentle, to be meek? Well, the Bible and Webster both agree on what meekness or gentleness looks like on the surface. A meek or a gentle person is someone who has a calm and consistent demeanor. They're not characterized by emotional outbursts of harshness or manipulative tactics. They are gentle. They are mild, especially in how they treat other people and under pressure. The question that you need to ask is, why are they so calm? The English definition assumes that it's because they're weak on the inside. They really don't have another option. They lack the strength, they lack the courage to advance their agenda, and so they just don't. But the Greek word that's used in the Bible points to a very different reason behind the calmness. This exact same word that was used at the time was used by farmers to describe wild horses that had been trained and had been broken to be productive. Sailors of the time would use this same word to describe the gentle breeze that's ideal for sailing. Now, in both examples, the calmness didn't exist because of a lack of strength. 
I mean, the wind can come in hurricane form. It's just not productive in hurricane form. It's destructive. So it's a gentle wind that allows a ship to sail. And a wild horse has tremendous strength. It's just not productive unless it's been broken and trained. But in order for either the wind or the horse or a person to be productive, to be helpful, to bring a blessing to themselves and others, the power that they have has to stay within limits. So I think the best working definition of gentleness in the Bible is strength under control. Strength that operates within boundaries, within limits. So a gentle person is not a weak person. They have put limits on their strength. They choose to be gentle so that their lives can be helpful and not damaging. Now, these limits that the gentle put on their lives, they show up in three particular areas. We're going to talk about these three this morning. The first place they show up is when it comes to the people limit. We all have a limit around us, a border around us. It's called the people limit. The gentle accept that they have no control over the people in their life. That's why they can be gentle. 2 Timothy 2.25, we read this, those who oppose him, this is speaking of Timothy, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Now, this verse is written to a young pastor, his name is Timothy, about how to respond to opposition that he was facing from people in the church that he led. But of course, people opposition is not limited to churches. I mean, it occurs every place that you find people working together on something. It occurs in marriages. It occurs in families. It occurs on the job. It always occurs in politics. I mean, you put two people in a room, and they will eventually oppose one another. Now, whenever we face opposition, we tend to respond in one of two ways. Either we respond to the opposition by getting aggressive. We push back to get our way. Or we respond by being passive and let them have their way. But God offers a third option in the face of opposition from people. And that option is to be gentle, gentleness. Now, if there's only two sides in a dispute, then you can only have winners and losers. Someone's got to win. Someone's got to lose. And, of course, the aggressive, they win. The passive, they lose. But gentleness recognizes a third party in every moment of people opposition, and that third party is God. Well, what role does God have in the disagreements that we have? What this verse says is that God is the one who grants repentance. To repent simply means to have a change of mind to turn around and do something different. Now, we tend to think that we have the power to convince people to do what we want them to do, or as we call it, what they should do. But all we can really do is instruct. All we can do is talk, which means we can explain our thinking. We can make a simple request. But our words do not have the power in themselves to change anyone. This is a Life-changing awareness, if you can grab this. Notice the order in this verse. Instruction first, you know, Timothy, instruct. We instruct, gently instruct. God then is the one who grants repentance. And then after that, then they come to a knowledge of the truth. We tend to take God out of the equation. We think it's just the two of us. So we instruct, 
We state our case. We plead our case. And then the light bulb goes on inside their head, and they change. They come to a knowledge of the truth. Does that work usually for you? Not usually. Sometimes, but not usually. This is why we, we tend to not gently instruct, because when it doesn't work, we dial up the harshness and dial down the gentleness. I want you to think of someone that you would really like to see change in some way. Now, if they're sitting next to you, don't look. Don't, don't even glance in that direction. But as you think about this person, my guess is that you have already tried to change them and that you've been somewhat, if not completely, frustrated in that endeavor. Why is that? I Im- imagine you've stated your case. Imagine you've pleaded. You've, you've tried to explain it as clearly as you could, and they remain unchanged. The reason is because God has put a border around the heart of every person. And inside that border is a sovereign person, which means a person that has the power or the right to do whatever they want to do. That's how God made us. And what that means is I don't get to decide what you do, and you don't get to decide what I do. For the same reason, I don't get to vote in the next Canadian elections, and they don't get to vote in our elections. Because on the other side of that border to the north is a sovereign nation. Now, all my family lives in that sovereign nation, and they're very interested in our politics, but they don't get a vote. So they talk to me about it all the time and try to influence my vote. But they don't get a vote. They'd love a vote, but they don't get a vote. And I don't get a vote in the Canadian elections. Now, we can visit other countries, but we don't get to vote in their elections. We don't have control over what happens in those countries. The same is true with people borders. The problem with people borders is that the borders don't neatly separate us from each other. In other words, if someone's making a mess of their life and they're close to your life, that mess doesn't stay on their side of the border. It oozes into your life. The mess that other people make, that really affects us. And so for all of us, our life would be easier and better probably if some of the people in our life would just change. So what do we do is we invade and we try to change them. And that's what harshness is. Harshness is the opposite of gentleness. Harshness is a cross-border invasion. It's an attempt to vote in an election that we have no right to vote in, in a decision that is not ours to make. Now, there are no visible fences that mark these borders that, that someone guarded by someone to say, hey, 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 you, you, you can't cross this border. This is a sovereign person. And so God has installed an alarm, an internal alarm, that goes off every time we cross one of these three borders we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, it is not, of course, an audible alarm. It's an emotional alarm. God has attached certain emotions to these borders. And whenever we cross these borders, whoop, the alarm, the emotional alarm goes off on the inside. We're going to talk about the alarm for each one of these borders. The alarm for the people border, for the people limit, is anger. Whenever we're angry, it's evidence most likely of the fact that we are attempting or have crossed a people border, a people limit. And the interesting thing about anger is this alarm goes off on both sides of the border. 
When we get angry enough at somebody, we feel justified to invade their life with harshness. We, we do a cross-border invasion. And as soon as we do that, the alarm of anger goes off in their heart because they know, hey, you've got no right to tell me what to do, and their emotional their anger triggers. And so the, the alarms are just blaring. The anger alarms are blaring. So when you feel this alarm, what should you do? How do you get back in the border? For each one of these, we're going to talk about the limit, the alarm that's attached to it, and then two solutions, two steps, two quick steps you can take to try to get back on your side of the fence, on your side of the limit. Now, there's more that can be done, of course, with anger, but these are two very quick things that you can do. First, pray for them. Pray for them. The reason this is important to do, because who is it that grants repentance? God does. If God grants change, that means then we can ask him to change somebody. And once we've asked him, that frees us to be gentle and leave the changing to him. Now, I've discovered that it is really, really hard to simultaneously pray for someone and be angry with them at the same time. The heart just can't do those two very well. You can start out really angry and praying, but if, if you're going to pray more than, hey, God, would you help this messed up person? If you're going to pray a little longer than that, anger begins to diminish. Because you're stepping back within your limit, you're appealing to the one who grants repentance, the one who can change. And that dials down the anger. It gets you back on your side of the fence. The second solution is to remember your weakness. One of the reasons we cease to be gentle with others is that we forget how weak we all are. I mean, there is a lot of change that needs to take place, not just in their lives, but in your life and in my life. Some of that we're aware of. A lot of it we may not even be aware of. And of the ones that we are aware of, how successful are we in changing? Well, that's a mixed bag. There's some growth, but there's major areas in all of our lives that we're like, yeah, we've been trying to change that for quite a while and just struggling. And it's as we realize and remember our own weakness that we have a heart of compassion for the fact that this other person probably is struggling too. They may not be aware of it or they may be aware of it, but they're struggling like us to change. In Hebrews chapter 5, a statement is made about the high priests in the Old Testament. It says this, He, speaking of the high priest, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This goes on to talk about how Jesus becomes the final high priest, the one who represents us to the Father. And because he took on a body and because he experienced all of the temptations that come with that body and did not yield to sin, he understands the pressure of temptation that we face on a daily basis. So like the high priest that preceded him, he has a heart of compassion for us. Once you realize how weak you are, then you have a heart of compassion for the weakness of other people. So whenever we're harsh with someone else, there's probably the fact that we have forgotten how weak we are. So remember your weakness. Now let's move on to the next limit. The next limit is the work limit. The work limit. The gentle accept that they do not have control over how much gets done. Now, I'm a task-oriented person, so this is a particular hard one for me. The purpose of work is what? To get things done. Purpose of work is not just to show up and hang out with a bunch of friends. No one pays, and there's no profit in just 
enjoying each other's company. Work exists to get things done. But in a broken world, there are lots of problems that get in the way of getting things done. And as the problems mount and the number of things on the to-do list grows, one of the things that tends to fade is gentleness. Gentleness goes down and harshness goes up. Why? Well, because harshness appears to be a fast way to get more done. When I worked uh, in the advertising world, before I came here to pastor this church, I discovered that people really do respond to harshness. I noticed that whenever somebody raised their voice, whenever somebody yelled, people would stop whatever they're doing, and they would turn and listen to the side of the commotion. And then if that person started swearing, oh, people would start moving. So I decided to try it. I didn't get into the swearing part, but I, I tried to do the yelling thing. And you know what? It really worked. People who weren't listening, who were busy doing other things, suddenly turned their head. And especially those that I was in authority over, they began to move. The louder I got, the faster they moved. And about the same time, uh, we had two little kids at home, and I noticed this works with kids too. I mean, kids are a great blessing. And they're a lot of fun, but you parents know they come with a lot of problems. I mean, just trying to get kids out the door and into a car can be a seemingly impossible task on the way to do anything. So I found myself doing the same thing, raising my voice to meet the challenges. Then, like at work, I noticed this works. It has an immediate effect. Things begin to happen. But then I noticed in both environments that the harshness benefit had a pretty big drop-off over time. I mean, in the short term, people started moving. Kids started responding. People at work would scramble. But eventually, I noticed that they would ignore the harsh person. And I noticed that whenever a problem occurred that needed to be solved and required would really be helpful to pull a team together, no one would ever ask the harsh person to help them solve an important problem. In fact, the harsh people never were really told about the problems. And if the harsh person was the boss, the harsh person, the boss tended to be in the the dark about what was really going on. Because nobody wanted to go to the person in authority who was really harsh and tell them, hey, we've got a problem, because they'd just blow up on them. And no one... No one would trust the harsh person. No one would take the risk to be honest with the harsh person. So what would happen over time is while in the short term, things would move, in the long term, the productivity of the team would just plummet whenever there was a harsh person in charge of the team. Or if they were on the team, they would just be kind of in the dark about what was going on. And I noticed the same thing happening with my kids. Kids, they will shut down in the face of harshness. And kids, they don't don't trust parents that develop a pattern of harshness towards them. Now, I know parents, we all struggle and we lose it. But when there's a pattern of harshness, our kids eventually are like, well, I'm I'm never going to tell dad or I'm never going to tell mom what I'm really struggling with. I'm never going to be honest with them about what's really going on because they're just going to blow up. That's been the pattern. Every time I disappoint them, the harshness goes up, the gentleness goes out the window. 
So if your only goal is to get them in the car right now, harshness works. But if you want to raise godly offspring like Ethan was talking about, boy, harshness just kills that. It just takes the heart out of the kids. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, first century church planner, addresses an argument that was occurring in this church in Corinth over which leader in the church should get more credit for the growth of the church. Should it be Paul himself or should it be someone else, Apollos, who had been around also? And in the middle of this response to this conflict, we get a great insight into how God views work, how God views getting things done. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. It says, what after all is Apollos? This was the other leader in the church. And what is Paul? We're only servants through whom you came to believe. Here's the key phrase, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Paul says. I, I brought the good news of the, of the forgiveness of Christ to you. But Apollos, he was the one that hung around for the better part of two years, building a relationship with you, answering your questions, helping you understand what this means. He watered that seed. But you really shouldn't give credit to either one of us because who really got it done? Who made, who made you grow? It was God who did that. This is a template for how God accomplishes the work he wants done, not just in the church, but throughout the planet. This is what God does. There's two, two steps in this. First, he assigns a goal that's too big for any one person to accomplish so that we have to team together. Then he breaks the goals into individual tasks so that no one can take credit all by themselves. Now, the desired outcome in this example was that people would come to know Christ and grow. So God broke that down into tasks and assigned one to Paul and one to Apollos. Now, of course, there were many more tasks than this and many more people that were probably involved in this, but only two are mentioned here. And the Corinthian church, they wanted to give the credit either to Paul or to Apollos. But God said, the one who got this done is me. So God is the one who gets the credit, not any individual assignment and particular task in this process. So the purpose of work, it turns out, is not to get a certain number of things done, but to understand clearly what your assignment is and to do that to the best of your ability. That has been a big change for me as I, as I can understand that. I mean, I'm, as I said, I'm a task kind of person, and I'll I'll start tomorrow, actually this afternoon, start creating and ramping up for all the things I want to get done this week. And I have yet, I can't remember, I think I was in my 20s, the last time I ended a week with, done, it's all done. Every week since whenever that week was in my 20s, it's been, oh, the list got longer, I got some things done, but I didn't get it all done. And it's so helpful for me to understand the purpose of the work that God has given me to do, whether it's in this church for me or in other situations for you, is not, God is not saying, all right, you got 10 things to do and you better get all of them done. That's not the purpose of work. It's to understand your assignment and to do it well. Now, the alarm that goes off, the emotional alarm that goes off whenever we cross the work limit is stress. Now, strain is fine. If you're looking for a job that has no strain to it, you're not looking for a job. You're looking for a place to retire. <laughs> strain is fine. That's part of any meaningful work. But stress occurs 
Whenever we take on too much work or we take on too much responsibility for how much gets done. And when that occurs, either we're not clear on what God's goal is in this assignment or we're not clear on what our part is in the overall goal of God. Jesus said something really interesting in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29 about this. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Now, burden is the New Testament word for stress. Now, stress is kind of a new term we use to describe it. So the word burdened would be probably the best equivalent in the New Testament for what we now call stress. So he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and stressed out of your minds, burdened, and I will give you rest. That sounds like I'll give you lots of time to take naps. Lay by the pool, read books. But then he goes on to say, take my yoke upon you. Well, that sounds like work. It is. And learn from me. I'm going I'm to give you some meaningful work to do, but you have to understand, I am gentle and humble in heart. My goal is not to give you assignments that you could never possibly do and to, to create lists that are beyond you. No, I'm gentle and humble in heart. If you get clear on the yoke that I have for you and what I want you to do and you do that, yeah, you're going to work. You're going to sweat. There's going to be toil. But you're going to find rest for your souls. You're going to be able to come to the end of the week, even though your list didn't get all done, with a clear sense of, you know what? I did the assignment as best as I understood. Well, I, I can rest. My soul can rest. Because Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. He gives us work to do, not to burden us, but to include us in the most important work that he's doing. So if we are burdened, something is off. Something is off. The alarms are going off for a reason. Two of my granddaughters love making cookies with my wife. So here's a picture of them in the middle of making cookies in our kitchen. And uh, if you were you know, arriving at our house at a point when these cookies were coming out of the oven they would run up to you and offer you a cookie that they had made. That's what they would say. We just made these cookies. Do you want one? So to hear them talk about it, you would think they made the cookies all by themselves. But if you ask my wife, not in front of them, she will tell you, if you're persistent, tell me what, what they actually did. Well, here, here's what they did. They licked the spoons and the utensils, which is what you see here. That's an important part of cookie making. <laughs> and the only real productive thing they did was they pressed the cookies down on the cookie sheet. That's the part of the whole cookie task that they're capable of at their age. Now, as they get older, they're, they're going to do more and more. But they're not powering up the oven and getting the mitts on and putting it in the hot oven. They're not doing that. They're not getting the mixer out and doing that. The only part they're doing right now is... But to hear them talk, we made the cookies. <laughs> now, if you listen to us talk about our work, it sounds kind of the same. We made the cookies. But if you ask God, could we get a look behind the scenes at all that need to go in for this to actually happen? We'd hear a similar story. Well, they, they did press the cookies down. But, you know, honestly, they couldn't have gotten out of bed if I hadn't given them health today. And they couldn't breathe to live if I hadn't given them life. And so, yeah, yeah, they were an important part, but they didn't do it. We just pressed down the dough. Not because 
God couldn't do it himself. You know, my wife, it's not like she doesn't want to press the dough down. No, that's the easiest part. God can do our work for us. So God gives us meaningful work to do, not because it's like, oh, i got to find someone to do this for me. I can't do it. No, he loves us, just like my wife loves our grandkids. And he wants us to have a meaningful part in the work that he's doing here. You know, the work that we have is not just makeup work. It's real stuff that needs to be done. It's just not the biggest part of everything that's going on. So whenever you find the stress alarm going off, here are the solutions. At the point of stress, we need to ask two questions. First of all, what is God's goal? This is really, really important. Our goal is to succeed in this task. But if you step back and say, what's God's goal in this? Oftentimes you'll find maybe not the same thing. What is God's goal? I mean, you're, you're trying to get three kids into the car. Your goal is to get them in the car in the next five minutes and get on the road. Now, that's fine. But is that God's biggest goal? Is God sitting up there going, I wonder if they can get those kids in in five minutes? <laughs> Last time it was six. We're trying to improve the time. Well, no, there, there might be some bigger goals like training kids and helping them learn how to obey, and that might take a little more time. Now, there's going to be times where, you know, you're heading to emergency, and we don't, this isn't a training opportunity. This is get in the car. We got to go. That's fine. You can be firm. But ask, what, what is the goal? You know, we're working on renovating these restrooms, and the goal was to have one side of them done this week. Well, we got the parts that had been ordered, and they were all the wrong size. So for a little while, you know, the thought was, no, it's going to be a disaster on Sunday. What are we going to do out there? Oh, no. But then you step back and say, well, what's God's goal in this? I mean, is, is all of heaven going, oh, no, did you hear that the restroom isn't going to be ready? I don't know what we're going to do. Well, it's okay to work at getting things done, but we don't need to be harsh. We can be gentle. We need to be firm saying, hey, we need to write stuff here. Make it right. That's fine. But we don't need to yell. We don't need to rant. We just need to be gentle. So what is God's goal? Have I gone beyond those limits by adding my own goals and elevating them above his goals? And then the second question is, what is my task? What's God's assignment? What's my part in this? Not the whole thing. What's my part? Now, if you've gone beyond the limits of your task and added more to it, then you're going to be burdened. God is not going to give you more than what you have capacity for. So if the answer is yes to one or both of these questions, that's why the stress alarm is going off, and it's time to retreat back to the work limits. The last limit is the time limit. The gentle accept that they have no control over the future. My wife can always tell when I'm concerned about something that might happen in the future. Her words, not mine, she will say, I get short with her. And I do. It's a great description. It's another way of saying harsh. I get short. I stop listening to her. I start using short staccato words and sentences. Why? Because my mind is consumed with concern over something that might be happening in the future. And I don't got time to listen. 
I don't got time to respond. I just got time to like, <clears throat> so my mind can keep ruminating on my concern for the future. Gentleness requires us to accept our time limit. You know what our time limit is? Now. Right now. That's our time limit. Tomorrow? It's out of bounds. We'll be there tomorrow, and that'll be now, so we can do stuff tomorrow. Now, we may need to plan some things for tomorrow. That's in today. But getting all concerned about tomorrow? Most of what we all are concerned about doesn't even happen. Philippians 4, 5 through 6 speaks of this. It says, let your gentleness be evident to everyone, to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, I knew about that anxious part of the verse for a long, long time. But I hadn't realized what preceded the do not be anxious thing. It says, be gentle. God is near. Don't worry. These are not three separate statements. For the longest time, I read them as three separate statements. Be gentle. All right? Check. God is near. Okay, check. Don't worry. Check. But these three are linked together. This is talking about a progression. When will our gentleness become evident? The idea here is not just you think you're gentle, but other people say, oh, yeah, they're gentle. When will your gentleness become evident to the people around you? Well, it's only when you become convinced that the Lord is near. Well, does God come and go from our lives in this world? No, he's always near. The problem is we forget the fact that he's near. The evidence of our forgetfulness is we cease to be gentle. It's just like my wife. Her first evidence that I'm concerned about the future, that I don't think God is present, is I'm short with her. I'm not gentle. My gentleness is not evident to her. Now, the emotion... The alarm, the emotional alarm that goes off whenever we cross this time border is the last thing on this list, which is worry. We get anxious. We worry. I mean, if we could see God standing right next to us, if we could be convinced that he's near as we face the challenges of life and move into the future, we wouldn't be anxious, and we would have the opportunity to be gentle because of that. Then we could do today's work without adding to today's challenge by worrying about what might happen tomorrow or the next day. But we struggle to recognize the God who is near today and every day. So this emotional worry alarm just seems like it's constantly on. In fact, maybe for some of you, it's just been on for so long, you don't recognize that it's going off because it's just a part of your head. You just worry. I struggle with this. So what's the solution for this cross-border incursion? Two suggestions. These come out of these verses. First, make a petition list. Get specific about what you're worrying about. That's what it's saying. Don't don't worry. Instead of worry, turn that worry into prayer and petition. Get specific about what you're worrying about and ask God for help. That is so important because what that does is when you stop ruminating and spinning about all the things you're worried about and you turn those into an actual list and you ask God for help with those things, the mere fact that you're praying about those, you know what you're doing? Is you're bringing God near in your mind. You're saying, you know, 
my worry is not going to have as much effect on whatever this is as God is, so I'm going to ask God for help. You do that. And it's as you do that, it says, that he grants a peace that passes understanding, that guards your hearts and your minds in Christ. That's the next verse that comes on with this. I remember in the early days, I would do this. Okay, I would make a list. I'm really worried about five things. And so I'd pray about those five things, and then it's not working. The peace that passes understanding has not arrived yet. So I'd do it again. Still not working. And again, this, this verse does not work. Well, the problem is I was doing the typical American thing is treating the Bible like pixie dust. You're just supposed to sprinkle it and automatically stuff happens. No, these are growing instructions. This is how you grow fruit. You don't buy an orange tree and wake up the next morning and say, hey, I thought it was an orange tree. Yeah? Just give it some time. So give another day. Hey, hey, it's not working. Yeah, it's fruit, man. Water it. Weed. And then in months, you'll see some fruit. If you don't, well, then take it back. But, but not today, not tomorrow, not this week. And that's the way this is. As you regularly do a pattern of turning what you're worried about into a list and praying about those things, over time, God will begin to replace your worry with a peace that doesn't make any sense. People will look at you and say, I don't know why you're not freaked out. Peace that passes understanding. The second suggestion is make a gratitude list. Well, what should be on that list? Same things that are on the worry list, the petition list. You know, it says everything. Well, that's impossible. This is talking about the everything that you're anxious about all the things you're anxious about. So take the petition list and add thanks next to each item. That's what this is saying. So you, you list the five or the eight or the 15 <laughs> things that you're worried about, and you go through those in prayer. Do that first. And then it says, with thanksgiving. Then you add thanks to it. Now, as I tried to do this, I thought, this feels really weird, thanking God for stuff that I'm worried about. Because how can you give thanks before the fact? You're anxious because you don't know how it's going to turn out. So what are you exactly thanking God for? I mean, thanks usually follows receiving something. I mean, I'm not going to walk up to you and say, hey, that big Christmas gift you're going to give me this year, thanks. <laughs> no, I'm going to wait until you decide to give me that big Christmas gift, and then I'll thank you for it. Thanks follows receiving something that you really want. But this is before the fact. So student thanks follow what happens, not precede what happens. This is important to understand logically because, well, for me it was because I was just, I didn't understand. Why am I, wh thank you for this messed up thing, I guess. It didn't make sense to me. Thanks before the fact does something really important. It acknowledges two things. It acknowledges our time limit the fact that I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And it acknowledges God's goodness and his control of whatever happens in the future. So here's the phrase that someone taught me that I use on this. God, I thank you in advance for how this particular thing is going to work out. That does, that does two powerful things. God, I'm, I'm not in charge of whatever, how it works out. And however it works out, it's going to be good. I'm going to trust you. 
So that, that's how you thank in advance. Now I want to go back to something that Jesus said at the beginning we looked at about this. Remember he said the meek would do what? They would inherit the earth. Well, that's a pretty big payday. Inheritance is about receiving benefits tomorrow. No, next week, next month. Not unless someone close to you dies. Inheritance is about receiving benefits in the distant future. So the benefits of gentleness don't usually show up in the near future. They show up in the inheritance future. That takes decades to see. This is why many people choose harshness over gentleness, because harshness, that has immediate results that destroys things in decades. Gentleness looks like it's not doing anything, but in decades, you inherit the earth takes decades to see. You know, if you stay in one place long enough, and this is one of the problems in our transient cultures, we don't know people long enough to see this happen. But if you stay in one place long enough and watch, you'll see this. You'll see the inheritance of the gentle. You will see the gentle inherit the kinds of friends and the kinds of kids and the kinds of marriages and the kinds of impact and the kinds of generational legacy that every single person who walks this planet wishes they could have. You see, if God is near, then you can be gentle today. I can be gentle today. Not because the future is problem-free. Oh, no. But because the owner of this place, this earth, is in control of the future, and he is the one that's in charge at handing out inheritance-level blessing, and he does that to the gentle. The harsh, you've just written yourself out of the will. Gentle, got a little more back. So here's my last question for us. What's the loudest alarm going off in your heart? Is it anger? Is it stress? Is it worry? Start with the loudest one. Start doing the two solutions on a daily basis. I'd recommend just doing that on a daily basis. Now, if all of the alarms are going off, you know, I, I know I've been in a situation like this. It's like, uh, I don't know. I'm angry. I'm stressed. I'm worried. I'm, everything's firing here. So if all the alarms are going off, start with the people limit, the first one we talked about. The reason I suggest that is people show up in every category, every one of these categories. If you can make progress in accepting the fact that you do not control what people do, you have just taken what I think is the first biggest step that you can take towards gentleness. If you don't accept this, you're going to be a harsh person. So start there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gentleness to us. You have been much kinder to us and slow to anger than we possibly deserve. We would love to inherit a lot of good blessing in the future. And you've said that that comes out of gentleness. So I pray that you would, would help us to stay within the limits in our relationships with people, to not use our anger and our harshness to invade their sovereignty. And as we face the work that we have and the tasks that are represented, as those tasks do or do not get done, I pray that you'd help us to stay within the assignments you've given us and that we would understand the goals 
behind the work that you've given us to do. And then as we move into the future, and there's all kinds of things that could happen that could really be awful, I pray you'd help us to turn those into things to petition you about and pray about and things to thank you in advance for. We thank you for a clear description in your word of the borders that you've established. Help us to be gentle. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.